Welcome to Rogue Bogues, episode one, My Journey podcast. Thanks for joining. We're going to get right into the family tree from the get-go. So we're going to break down my parents' journey a little bit and the, my grandparents and, and all that fun stuff and what led to, obviously, myself and my sister being born. So here we go. Let's get rogue. The family tree starts in Croatia. For those of you who know me know I have a Croatian background. I'm fiercely proud of that. I'm very proud Australian first and foremost, but the, my background is very, very important to me. We'll explain why later. My mother is born in my mother Ankita Bogut. So we translated that to Anne in, uh, in Australia for obvious reasons, because it would have sounded like Ankika. A lot of uh, migrants and ethnics from back in the day would change their names, especially from the Balkans with the itches and whatnot, so it could be pronounced properly. Born in a town called Shishnevich, small village, and by village, I mean village. You know, uh, a lot of people that lived in the area, they basically would only do things that were local, generally by foot or where they could get with a bike. There's, that, you know, to have a car back then was, was very, very rare. And um, that's in the town of Karlovac, which is about an hour, hour and a half from the capital, Zagreb. So generally people would live in that area. They're not going to Zagreb. I'm ever rarely driving down that way. They kind of stay local. And, and um, my mother had then migrated with the family, with the grandparents at 11 years old. My grandfather had then divorced my grandmother, left them in Australia, left my, uh, my grandmother on my mum's side, my mother and her sister, my auntie, and, and jetted back to Croatia to start a new life, remarried there, had kids there. I'm actually pretty close to my what would be classified as my half-auntie. I've got an half-uncle over there as well, but, but I'm really close to my half-auntie and Diana, and she christened our firstborn. Um, her and her husband, Alan. So whenever I go back there, I spend a lot of time with them. So yeah, basically my mother was somewhat left to fend for herself without a man in the house. Um, father had left and was predominantly raised by my grandmother and my great-grandmother, um, raised my mother. And it was um, it was off to reality for her pretty quickly, you know. So that's where, that's where that went. My, my mother worked in admin, secretary, filing, whatever the politically correct term is for, for that these days. That's what my mother did, just worked for a company and helped the boss out. I guess he'd probably classify it as a personal assistant type. Just doing the, the paperwork and all that fun stuff. So that, that's what my mum did for a living. Yeah, that that was that that was it with my mum's journey. It wasn't you know too too deep as far as what my father went through, which we'll get to in a second. But um, my mother had met my father. They were, they were both in their in their mid teens when they met, and and they were what would be deemed as high school sweethearts today. And went off and got married and and had yours truly and and, and my sister Michelle, obviously before me, five years older. So we'll move on to my father, Misha Bogut. Make sure we then change to Michael because, yeah, there was no chance. It would be miso would be the English spelling, like a miso soup. So to avoid bullying and all that kind of stuff, um, like I said, a lot of ethnic people would change their names and make them a bit more anglicized so they were easier to pronounce. Born in Osijek, Croatia, three and a half odd hour drive from uh, the capital of Zagreb. It's actually inland, Hungarian border down that way, Slavonia region, which is known for farming and pastures and flat. You know, it's a, it's a flat part of Croatia. So he was there till 14 years old. My grandfather had worked on on building sites in Germany, so he'd be fl- he'd be a fly in, fly out for a lot of the time, just trying to find the odd job. My father had then migrated at, at 14 years old with his with his parents, my grandparents, and and come to Australia. And it was a time for both my mother and father that um, you essentially had to be very careful of saying that you were Croatian whilst living in Croatia, which wasn't really called Croatia at the time. It was Yugoslavia or the former Yugoslavia that we know now, communist regime. And it was, they, they did not take lightly if, if you were saying that you were um, Croatian. And there was turmoil basically since World War II there. Uh, there were good years and bad years, but um, like most communist nations, it, it gets out of hand through portions of the, you know, portions of time. And the people are usually the ones that suffer and, and in this part of the world in Croatia, it was the Croatians generally and, and Bosnia copped it a fair bit as well. But, um, you know, it was to the extent of if you're drinking at a pub or, you know, whatever, and or you're, at, you're at home and, and the neighbor hears you say something pro-Croatian, you know, they're calling the, the, the Yugoslavian, essentially the federal police, the military police, and they're rocking up to your house and kicking the shit out of you. And making sure that you're not going to be pro-Croat anymore. And sometimes they'd throw you in jail. My great-grandfather got, you know, basically got severely to the point of his life, got beaten in front of the family um, in Croatia. And that's what it was. It was, you know, it was, you had to be very, very careful what you did and said. And so much so that it carried on to, to Australia. It carried on to, 
Croatians in Australia and a lot of a lot of people that are Croatian that are listening to this that are around my age or even even much older. You know, the Croatian community clubs all over Australia. So most ethnic communities have their own community clubs. So you'll see these random halls with flags. You know, especially in Melbourne, and there were places that we'd go. We'd have a ch- there was a church there, and then fun- functions would be had there. So. Mother's Day, Easter, Christmas, New Year's, there'd be concerts there. Croatian singers would come in from Croatia, all Croatian food and it's just tables and there was a dance floor in the middle and that was kind of where most Croatian people went. Well, what was happening was there was um, Yugoslavian spies that got sent out to go to these community clubs and take photos of people in there. And what they would do is they'll they'll take those photos back to Yugoslavia and the moment those people you know, that were photographed in basically Croatian community clubs were deemed as pro-Croat and anti-Yugoslav government or anti-government. You'd land back for a holiday and get arrested. And that was, um, you know, happening more often than not. And a lot of people couldn't figure out what the hell was going on, when they were, how, they, how they knew and all that kind of stuff. And then they figured out that people, you know, there were spies essentially coming to those dances because they can still speak the language. They can they can look Croatian. They can sound Croatian, even if they're Yugoslavian or, or different nationalities. And that, that was kind of how far the hand of Yugoslavia and communism was that it went around the world. So, so much so that it was, I remember going to dances and, and there'd be, a bloke taking photos of, of I don't know, his kids or, or or the function itself, and he'd almost you know get beaten to a pulp or close to because people thought he was a spy. I mean, that's how how crazy it was back in those days. But nevertheless, uh, moving on. I mean, yeah. So my father then migrated at fourteen. They then went back to Croatia at about sixteen and a half, about six months to try and make it work. And and then they realised how how lucky they were in Australia and a very young and free and prosperous country back then. And they really appreciated that. They ended up coming back um, pretty much straight away. And this was on the ships back back in the day. My, my father still remembers. You know, it's it's a five six month journey from from start to finish essentially, or somewhere around that timeline to to get to Australia. So they funnily enough pick um, for his high school when he was 14, they pick one of the, an area called Dufton, which is near where I grew up, funnily enough, in um, near Endeavour Hills and Dandenong. And it's a tough area. It's a, it's a rough area. And it was, it's a very Anglo area. Very, very, I would say it's, it's, it's Yobbo at times. And, and that's just what it was back in the day. I think it's changed a lot since then, but kind of a cheaper entry point area. And they seemed to school there to Dufton Tech. And so, so my dad, you know, he's 6'4", big guy, you know, big, strong, burly, um, bulky guy. Didn't speak much English. Obviously stood out like dog's balls because he looked heavily ethnic, probably not the, the right place to be. So he was he was bullied from day dot in school, mainly with the wog taunt, a lot of racism daily. Fucking wog, go back to where, where you came from. You don't belong here. You know, and it seemed like he could do nothing right because of that. And it just happened on a, on a daily basis. And, and this is, you know, the word wog, I think today has been dumbed down. Wog's out of work, Wog boy, the comedy routine, which I'm a big fan of, of all the stereotypes of Wog's is, is absolutely hilarious. And I have no issue with the word today, to be honest with you. Like, there's no word that you can really call me that I really care too much. Um, I'll have a crack back at you and call you a name. If you call me a name, I'm kind of that petty, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to fight you over a word or I'm not going to try and, um, get you fired from your job or get you canceled just because you called me a name. Should it be used? Probably not, but it doesn't bother me. But you got to remember in the seventies and eighties, the context of that word was, was much more fierce. It was laced with venom. And it was it was all about, mate, go back to where you came from. We don't want you here. You don't belong here. And, you know, for a 14-year-old kid, I mean, half the time he couldn't even understand what they were saying, but he, he quickly figured out that, that Wog was not a good thing and that was something he had to deal with. So my grandmother, a very, very tough lady, still alive to this day, is Denka from my father's side. I guarantee you should be listening to this podcast. Uh, my grandmother has um, collected every every bit of memorabilia she can since I was since I went to college, really, she'd print out all the stat sheets from every game I played in, print out articles as soon as, as soon as she figured out how to use the internet and all that kind of stuff with Photoshop stuff. And I, I have like, I probably have 20 odd folders that she'd made over the years of my career. So it's pretty cool. Like to go, we'll go through that one day with, with the kids, her great grandkids. And it's pretty special. And, and I know she would listen to this podcast. So quick shout out to Zdenka. But, um, my, my, my dad was getting bullied and, and went and had a cry to, 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 to Zdenka, the, his mother and, I guess there was a group of kids bullying him and um, my grandmother had said, well, there's not much I can do about it, but take this with you and gave him a brick, <laughs> put a brick in his hand. So he's gone off to school and my grandfather had given a, had a conversation with him as well and said, well, how many in the group are bullying you? And he said, oh, there's one main guy in the group, but there's a bunch of them. Like, what am I supposed to do? And, and he said, wait or find the guy when he's by himself and give it to him. And that's what he did. He, he waited for that that kid that's- um, 
was in a group of 10 people that would bully him and he waited for him outside the toilets one, one day and gave him a beating and he never got bullied by that kid or that group ever again. But there was one other kid he said that was 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 kind of relentless and, and you could never really catch him and he got the walk stuff every day and so one day in PE class the kid I don't know they were playing something and my dad obviously messed up not knowing the sport or whatever it was and so you fucking walk man what are you doing this dad this dad and so my dad I guess had had enough at that point and and walked up and, and knocked his lights out dropped the kid um, floored him had then the teacher PE teacher was behind my dad walking up to him kind of to his back and went went on the attack straight away was. Gave him the, you fucking wog, what do you think you're doing? We don't do that here, all that kind of stuff. And before he even got to kind of grab my dad, my dad had elbowed him in the face. And my dad tells me that he just turned around. The PE teacher was on the ground. There was teeth that were on the ground in front of him. And he was crying like like a baby. And he then turned around and the students were about to go, my dad, all of them. Um, and he picked up a cricket bat and was ready to start swinging. And somehow it all it all kind of calmed. And he got sent to the principal's office. So what you you would hope or think would be some sort of calm, but guess what happened? You know, the principal <laughs> gave him the same the same tongue lashing that he just heard from the previous two people. And you know, you fucking wog. Like, what are you doing? We we gave you a chance here. You know, uh, came from another country. Blah blah blah. And, and that's all my dad needed to hear. Went over to the desk and grabbed him by the tie and punched him square in the face and got his marching orders. Was expelled in year eight. So think about that. Year eight, expelled, gone, and uh, they called my grandmother and said, you, you, "You know, your son's not welcome back to school." Grandfather had said, "Well, son, you know, you want to, you want to fight, and you want to be tough, and you want to do all that stuff at school. Go, go find yourself a job if you're an adult." And my father was basically then then an adult at thirteen odd, fourteen years old. So he then tells me that he went on to work just your general factory worker, you know, a labor hand at different businesses. And he said the craziest thing he remembers was how prosperous Australia was. He had 28 jobs in a year. And he said that he would he would go and get a job by walking into a building and saying, do you need some help? I need a job. They give him a job. And there was so much work around that he, if he hated that job or didn't like it or didn't like the boss or there were people there that he didn't get along with, he would walk out at lunchtime and just not go back. And he he tells me he'd just walk out at lunch, go three doors down and go to some other business and be like, hey, I need a job and he'd get it. And he said it was it was unbelievable how much work there was in Australia. Just a little tidbit for how, how Australia once was, I guess, back in the day. And he then, then nailed down a, a more solid job um, doing the same kind of thing and long hour shifts, eight, eight hour shifts there were back then with no real breaks, wasn't unionized and all that stuff that we see today. So real real man's or woman's hard work, you know, eight eight hours straight, you know, no breaks, go home, punch the clock and get your money and, and hard day's work. And so he he then had saved up for for some for a nice muscle car. He was a rev head back then. He'd do all his own cars up and that's how he ended up becoming a carburetor specialist to one of the best there ever was, in my opinion, you know, a lot of people with hotted up cars would would come across town to see my dad to do their carburetors. So they started doing that, working at a place called Muller's, which which then turned into Muller's and Jackers. So I think Ultra Tune Americans think Jiffy Lou, but a chained mechanic. So he would be the carburetor and fuel specialist. So he'd do all the carburetors, and then um, he moved up quick. And and the boss basically said to him, you know, you're too advanced for for an apprentice position. You're way too advanced, and you can go get a, a real job. So at, at 18, 17, 18, he did. Went and got a you know a job at a mechanical workshop as the head the head guy for carburetors and carburetor and fuel specialist. In the meantime, he ran into a bit of trouble with the law. He had a hotted up car and he hung it around a corner, being a hero, and and collected a bunch of of parked cars. So got arrested. He was seventeen years old at the time. Got arrested. Had a court date. So they delayed the court date a couple of times, and he was like, "Cool, probably get off." Like you know, it's getting delayed. It should be good. But they delayed it enough that he turned eighteen when he got prosecuted and ended up getting jail time didn't hurt anyone ever no one was hurt it just did, did some property damage of some parked cars i believe and i went to pentridge jail in coburg which is i guess now it's a housing development or something but it was a pretty rough um, place back in the day i think my father mentioned that chopper reed was 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 around there at that time in a different section or division of the jail but remembers there was murmurs but he he ended up there for five days so you look at where society's gone today you'd Reckless driving, you'd probably cop a fine, you lose your license, they'd probably impound your car and, and you're going home and sleep in your bed. So times have really changed. But the one thing that it did to my father was it he still talked about it throughout my childhood. Like I never wanted to go back to jail. I, I absolutely hated it. It worked me up. And I wouldn't say 
you know, what he did was was absolutely criminal, like, like hurting someone or robbing someone or willfully trying to do something. He made a mistake and he took it on the chin, faced the consequences and never wants to go back there. And he never had a never had issue with the law beyond that. And yeah, just, just real interesting to hear you know, how much different it was back in the day, like going to, going to jail essentially for an issue with with your car or having an accident or whatever, even though he caused it, but, but pretty crazy. So you move on to that. He, he's then working for a guy for a couple of months and then ends up going out on his own. So he goes out and starts his own business. At, I think he, he said he was in his 20s, 20 and a half, 21 years old. So, so think about that. You know, he's um, gone from getting expelled from high school in year eight, working factories, not knowing English well. Like his English was, I don't know if it'd be a primary school level once he'd left year eight. So reading and writing was definitely not a strength. I don't know if it was even past as literate and now he's starting his own business. So, you know, he ends up starting a place called Miles Carburetors in Seaford with with our cousin who also migrated from Croatia, then moves on to a place called Ace Carburetors, bought an existing business and then turned it into his own, which was in Clayton which is a very important part of my journey. Then went on to a place called Intune in Roville. And then the final business was ABC Carburetors, which he did from home for a bit. Then went to a factory in Dandenong and then came back home a little bit more. But those warehouses were my life. That's where I spent a lot of my childhood. I had to go, you know, especially school holidays, especially at a young age before I was in kindy or, or school, had to kind of go with the old man and old lady and, and, and watch them work and just hang around in there and just try to try to play in the in, essentially in the factory or the warehouse. And it's just... That whole story for me, for someone that's migrated to Australia, it's the quintessential Australian story of what Australia did for, for migrants and how much it helped them if they wanted to be helped and how much work they had and the, the opportunities they had if they wanted them and wanted to work hard. And my dad's a prime example of that, like to go from, like I said, not, not, not knowing English well and the journey that he had, obviously some tough times to then, to then running a pretty successful business from scratch. Is pretty impressive. So my mum ended up then working for my dad once he started his own business. So basically, the way carburetors work, my mother would, would drive out to say an ultra tune. They'd call, oh, we've got a carburetor problem for a customer. They wouldn't know how to do them. Call my, my dad's business. He'd be the third party um, or the subby that would do the job. Mum would drive down ultra tune. They'd strip the carburetor. She'd bring it back to my father. He'd, he'd recondition it, you know, clean it all up, make sure it's functioning, make it look brand new. Mum would drive it back to ultra tune. That's how we'd make our money. So the marriage, my mum and dad, sure was interesting at times. You know, whenever you work with your spouse, it, it definitely there's positives and negatives. And being around each other twenty four seven, I guess they they had good times and bad times. But it, it was highly stressful at times. I still remember the recession. I think in the nineties or late eighties, early nineties, or somewhere around there, and struggling to put food on the table. You know, it was it was bread for dinner and. I still remember how stressed my dad was and mum and dad would argue a little bit because I was so stressed and, and you don't really know what's going on as a kid, but looking back, asking questions and it was, yeah, the recession, like we hadn't, we hadn't, you know, overdraft in the bank and, and really struggling, but they pushed through and raised the family of four and we ended up then, obviously we, we, we grew up in, in Dandenong, my sister and I, my sister Michelle was five years older than me. So I was born after her and we grew up in, on Brady Road in Dandenong, born in the Mulgrave Hospital. That's kind of where I was till two or three years old. And then there was a pop-up suburb next door called Endeavour Hills, which lives up to its name. It's full of hills. So an absolute nightmare of a place when you're a kid, if you need to walk somewhere or ride a bike, because one way is pretty easy and then the other way is not or vice versa. Like it's a pain in the ass. It was, it definitely gave you a, a lot of exercise. The other interesting thing about Endeavour Hills is all the streets are named, named after famous explorers. So you've got James Cook Drive, you've got John Faulkner Drive, you've got Singleton Drive, and I guess in today's society, uh, I'm surprised this whole suburb hasn't just been cancelled and there hasn't been pop-up protesters demanding um, street name changes, but that's a, that's a story for another day. It was just an interesting tidbit for, for that suburb. So I grew up on a street called Siena Crescent. It was a really steep hill, and that's that's kind of where the, the bulk of my childhood was spent there in Dandenong. And it was a brand new suburb. It was it was um, there was mainly migrants moving to the area because it was an affordable suburb, about 45, 40 minutes from from the city. A lot of different cultures and, and it was awesome in that sense. I, I, I tried all kinds of different food from neighbors, learned different languages. Of course, as a kid, you generally learn all the swear words first from different languages. So I can swear pretty fluently in two handfuls of um, of languages, mainly from Europe. So that was always fun. And I think that was a good thing about the area. There was just a lot of different cultures and it was very multicultural. There wasn't a whole lot of one or, or another. It was a real melting pot. So look, as, as a kid- Dandenong for me was my city. That was my CBD. We, we never, ever 
went to the city of Melbourne. I mean, number one, we couldn't afford just a fuel to drive there and back, but we just we just wouldn't go there. So Dandenong was the big big lights for me. It was like, well, we're going to Dandenong, like you know, we're going going to the movies. I still remember going to the Dandenong Plaza was like a huge treat. Going to the village cinemas down there. So Dandenong was it for me. We spent a lot of time there on the weekends and all our shopping and all that kind of stuff was done there. Um, wasn't a kid that really. Went to sporting events, never really had the opportunity. I mean, we didn't, like I said, especially early in my childhood, dad worked, you know, nine till nine some days, some days, Saturdays as well, and, and worked a lot of hours. And, and they gen- generally would, would, especially early in my childhood, have to, have to, you know, rest up for work. And we weren't going to sporting events at night. And it just wasn't something that we did. We, we couldn't afford it. It was, it was very, very expensive, even to the footy and whatnot. I think my first footy game as a kid was at 12 or 13 years old with a friend of mine at Waverley Park. Um, we got some free tickets and went. Other than that, it just wasn't something that we did mainly because of money. So it was just one of those things. So for me, this is then when the, the Croatian part of me kind of was big because people were kind of find it strange to say, we grew up in Australia, but we grew up in a, I grew up in a Croatian household, so I feel like I grew up in Croat in a Croatian hub bubble thing in in Australia. And the reason I say that is it was it was Croatian food. My mum cooked Croatian. Our grandparents cooked Croatian. That was the first language that I learned. Babysitters were generally grandparents. They they just spoke Croatian. I still remember all the you know knickknacks around the house were Croatian flags and Croatian clocks and Croatian glassware for the rakia, which is a, a Croatian spirit, like all that kind of stuff. And and I assume most people that listen to this have exactly the same stories. And that was you know it was it was a bubble. It was like a different world from from the place I was living out you know outside and the rest of Australia. And but I think we still did a pretty good job of assimilating with with Australia and Australian culture and learning the ideals and norms of Australia and very compatible with Croatia, to be honest. I mean, at that time, it was similar ideals and religions and mentality. And um, Croatians are a bit more crazy and and the fuse is, is much shorter, but um, they can have a laugh and you can have a punch up and then have a drink an hour later. And that was just, that's kind of the similarities. But why do I say that? I think I think it's very important that migrants, when they migrate, have have their own community that they can help them integrate and not have that homesickness and, and, and just feel a bit of normality while they're transitioning. But I still feel like you still need to assimilate with with regular society because you need to get a job, you need to learn the language, you need to do everyday things. So I think it, you know, it needs to be a good 50-50 balance where I think now you don't want to sway it one way or the other. I think there are some cultures and, and people that they generally move to Australia or America and they, they just try to stay in their little bubble and I don't think it's good and I think it's you, you need to assimilate a little bit just to, to give your, ch- your kids a better chance and, and, and their kids you know to get better jobs get out there in the workforce but that's the path some people choose and, and on, the, on the flip side you can't migrate to Australia and completely turn your back on on your background or the country that you fled which I've seen people do as well because that homesickness and that mental toll it takes on you will also have an effect so I think it's a you need a good balance there in my opinion and that worked for us really really well we, we really had that balance and I think my father owning his own business really accelerated that and sped it up but then you know like you have my grandmother on on my mother's side very thick accent still been in australia for you know what is it 50 60 years and and generally only assimilated with the melbourne Knights soccer club community club on, on that side of town and all they spoke was croatian so english um never really got to a level that was that was really good because my grandmother just just stayed in tila within her own croatian community so everyone does it differently but for, for you know in my opinion i think it's vital to integrate into the place you're moving to but also keep your ideals so that was the balance that we had and that's kind of the way that went so Primary school for me, I went to a school called Thomas Mitchell Primary School, which was just down the street. It was about a 10-minute walk from my house. It was pretty much a a brand new school, so it was pretty nice. Like I I really enjoyed my time there. As a kid, I was full of beans, energy, very hypo. You know, um, funnily enough, both of our kids uh, are very similar. You know, I still remember my parents, just sit down, sit still. I just couldn't sit still, could not sit still for the life of me. And I I think a lot of kids like that. I think it's just the energy you have. And I I was very, very active. So all about sport, getting out, running, doing this, doing that. And I think by today's standards, if I was in school, I would have been labeled as ADHD or ADD. You know, today we're quick to label kids, but I definitely didn't have ADD or ADHD, but I would have been labeled with it today. Um, But back, back then, you know, I think, you put a kid in a classroom and put him behind a desk and sit there for three or four hours and you have your odd lunch break and little break. I just don't think every kid's going to be good at that. And I, I wasn't, I couldn't sit still. So I, I would just wait to go to lunchtime and play and run around and do all those fun things. So very, very active. And 
yeah, like it's just interesting looking back. Like I said today, it'd be it'd be a whole different story. But um, you know, you'd probably have teachers or parents wanted to medicate you. And um, I look at some kids today that, that that really don't have major issues besides the fact that they're active and hyperactive and, and love love to run and be free and go and do different things. And that was me. And unfortunately, today that's somewhat frowned upon in some schools. I think it's starting to change a little bit, and we're a bit more aware of it. But I know I know in America there's a huge issue with with kids. I think the spike for, for ADHD and ADD. I think it's at an all time high, Adderall, all that kind of stuff. So pretty pretty sad times, but just an observation from my childhood and primary school for me. Look, I had, I had a fair few dramas, I had a fair few fights as a young kid. I still remember them to this day. Um, a few few notable ones. One was um, the kid playing basketball had said something to me, you know, and said something offensive to me. So I, I turned, pushed him, he fell over and didn't push him that hard, pushed him enough, but he, he fell over and, and was kind of quite embarrassed by it. And I did the noble thing, which is rare for me. And I turned around and tried to walk away and he kicked me in the back of the leg as he was on the floor. And I saw right after that, I turned around and um, unfortunately booted him in the face and, you know, the damage I could have done, which I didn't thankfully, but he was, you know, he was balling and Gave him a pretty good one, and and that was that was a pretty pretty quick wake up call for me of, of dealing with consequences. Who had in a fair bit of trouble, but um, I was always taught to defend myself. But probably should have let that one go. That was one, and the second one, which caused me a lot of problems for kind of the rest of my adolescence and teen years, was I was in grade three or four, and my best mate and I, a guy named Marco, a Croatian kid that lived up the street, and he was you know a bit of a troublemaker. If you listen to this, I say hello. But us together was was a a bad mix we were a troublesome pair and we used to um go to school on on weekends like go to the school when it was closed and that's how stupid we were as kids like we hate we didn't really like school we hated school you know and and couldn't wait for the weekend to come and then a the weekend we get our, our footy our bike and our ball and go to school and ride around the school and play on the playground and, and and play on the footy fields and whatever so i'm there one weekend and in grade three or four and there's a, a kid that's in grade four, uh five or six or two or three years above me still remember his name his name was waleed or wally for short and um we got into a little tussle about something and he squared up to me and i just remember booting him straight in the nuts he, he went down like a sack of shit and um you know we got out of there my friend and i and i didn't know how much of a problem that would cause me for the rest of my short um, adolescence and teenage years so this this kid ends up being one of those um gang type thugs that would you're hanging out at the shops and would stare you down and, and what are you looking at type blokes and want to go me, you know, one of those guys. He ended up turning into one of those guys. So when I was in high school, he used to um, get his mates and one of them had their pee plates and he'd hang with the older crowd. He dropped out of high school in year nine, I think it was. And yeah, they they they, they would come out and wait for me. I, I went to St. John's Regional College in Dandenong Catholic School. I, I always catch a buzz there. They, they just come away from me. Um, so I'd find out through other friends, like, this guy's here waiting for you. So I'd, I'd have to navigate different exits sometimes. They never caught me, thankfully. It's close a few times, but I'd always try to play it smart. And, and I always had my head on a swivel, especially, you know, the Endeavour Hills of Dandenong bus route is something that I could write a book on alone of all the shit that I saw on that on that bus and, and people high on drugs and all that kind of stuff, or, or, all kinds of people and and yeah, I mean, Wally never, thankfully never caught me. So if you're watching this, unlucky mate, but um, that was interesting. So going back to my best mate, Marco, yeah, we hung out nonstop. We, we both were from, from you know, families that migrated from Croatia. So just naturally got along. He lived a one minute walk from my house, um, just up the street. And we do all kinds of stuff together, play sport together. He was pretty sporty as well. He was more soccer, but we play cricket. We do everything together. And we then started the Endeavour Hill Shopping Centre just got built. It was a brand new shopping complex. It was about a 20 minute walk from our house. And if anyone's listening to this that owned a business there or, or the shops there, I apologize because the shit that we used to do at that place and just getting in trouble nonstop and just being absolute young shitheads. We we're only 10, 11, 12 years old, but we used to go there on weekends and that, you know, that, that would generally be our hangout spot um, other than schools, really. So, you know, if it was really hot, we'd go there because it was air conditioned. If it was raining, we'd go there because there was a roof over our head. And, we were kind of, we were Jackass the movie before Jackass the movie came out. So what do I mean by that? You know, we'd go to, we'd go to Big W, we'd take the Nerf guns out of the boxes and run around the store shooting each other. We'd get footies and kick them over the shelves to each other in the middle of the store. We'd play basketball on the hoop set up. Like we'd just do so much stupid, reckless stuff and, and just, you know, just being a nuisance really, just dumb kids that needed to clip around the year. And then we'd go to, you know, Safeway, it was called Safeway at the time, which is now Woolworths. And we'd, we'd go in there and go to the fruit section and have a banana and eat some nuts as we walk around the store, have a chocolate bar and a can of Coke and then walk out and, um, you know, probably worth some money along the way, but it was it was just 
just what we did. We we're kids that never really had money in our pockets, and it's not an excuse. Um, obviously, we you know once we grow up and be an adult, you look back and and realize how silly it was. But they're the kind of things we did. We we play pranks on people, and you know we'd have water pistols, and, and we walk around shooting people with water pistols, kind of under our arm, and <laughs> waiting just random people, like just stuff like that. Just absolute. I think Jackass a movie, probably not to the extremes that they took it, but we, we were that at eleven or twelve years old, and and doing it at the shopping center. So you got to a point where my mate ended up getting banned from Big W. We got run-ins all the time. So that was kind of where we had our fun. And one of my other mates. Was a Macedonian kid. He he owned the local milk bar, so we used to go and hang out at the, at the milk bar. We used to um, still remember when it was forty the forty degree days back in the day, and we used to go to the milk bar and hang in the fridges, like you know, in the actual back part of the fridges, just sitting there. And they were the fun things we kind of did, you know, to, to just pass time. But like I said, we, we couldn't do it too much because we never our families didn't have a lot of money, and we didn't have a lot of money in our pockets. So we made do with what we had. Um, we did all the other fun stuff like putting dog poo in a paper bag and lighting it on fire and knocking on people's doors. We, you know, all that, all that dumb stuff. We, we, we got our, our own houses egged. Uh, we egged other people's houses. It was just things you did as a kid. And people that are my age can probably relate a, bit, a little bit better. But they were just, they were just things that we did. When you talk about it now, you realize how stupid you were. But the other part of childhood for me was, I guess, the business mentality that at least myself, Marco, um, had at a young age. It was. You know, we'd try to find anywhere we could just to get a dollar in our pocket. And when we did, we'd end up spending it on stupid stuff anyway, mainly basketball cards. I still remember we'd get like a, a bucket from home, um, fill it up with with uh, soap, sponge, and go door knocking. Hey, can we wash your car for five bucks? People would do it. People would be like, cool, yeah, go for it. And I probably should charge more thinking back, but. And we get five bucks and we go we go do something with it and we go buy some basketball cars or some lollies or, or something something silly that kids buy i remember the in australia in, in primary school they had these um chocolate drives for those of you who went to school in australia and you get a case of chocolate bars i think toblerone looking chocolate bars those long kind of bars and you get about 24 pack and you'd have to you'd have to go home and then sell them to friends or family or you could go door knocking or you could do whatever you wanted to do and you'd sell them to raise money and then if you sold them quick enough i think you had six weeks to sell them if you sold them quick enough some kids would get a second box and then there was like a competition about who could sell the most chocolates and it was usually kids that had money their parents would end up buying them all or whatever but i figured out a good way to make money out of that was you know the chocolates for two dollars there'd be a slip in with your chocolates that kind of you're supposed to show people like hey this is what we're raising money for like here's all the details this is how much it is i took that straight out and the two dollars was now four dollars because you know i wanted a commission for, for doing the hard labor of selling these chocolate bars so i like to think that that was pretty business orientated for the future so i'm involved heavily right now in in, in a bunch of different things from business point of view and I guess that's where it came from. The only other thing I remember we did, we so used to go to the Melbourne Knights soccer games up up out in Sunshine. I went like two or three times with Marco, his family. They they drove us out there, but um, I'd never really been. I think it was Mark Vaduka's last year, I think. And we, we'd go out there and the NSL National Soccer League. I think back then they had these kind of soccer newspaper things that would come out monthly, and they were free. Like, and if you'd enter the game, paid your admission fee, you get a free newspaper. So we we go to the bathroom, and there's like two crates. Of newspapers tied up in like a zip tie type thing just sitting there in the front of the bathroom as you walk in so me and marco end up <laughs> taking the newspapers putting them in a bag and walking around like in the crowd during the game live and selling them for a dollar a pot so we, we ended up selling a bunch of them until some bloke like looked at the front of it and it actually had free on the front of the <laughs> on the front of the um the newspaper so i just remember shit like that and all these old men are like you know abusing us in croatian but that's the kind of stuff we did as kids i mean i'm sure there's an endless amount of stories that people out there have from childhood and, and just reliving those is, is so cool to hear some of those stories some of them are crazy some of them are not but that was kind of you know what we did as kids and it just you know it was fun back then and sometimes we deserve to get a hiding from it sometimes we didn't and you learnt a lot especially you know, growing up in Dandenong for me in that area, I learned to have my he head on a swivel at an early age because it, it meant it meant a junkie knocking knocking your block off. It meant someone stealing you know your bag. It meant you just had to have a head on your swivel and catching buses and trains and public transport. And you know, as a young fella, and you just had to you had to figure it out. There were places in even in my high school there were places that I knew not to go during lunchtime. I knew places in Dandenong when I'm going to the bus stop. I'm like, I, I don't want to go down this way because I know there's some some boys that hang there that are a bit rougher that might go, you know, might try to roll you or I don't know, take your, your bag or whatever you got. So it was it was it was one of those suburbs that um highly stressful at times, but I think it was invaluable to to who I am today because it it, it made me really appreciate everything that I have now. But at the same time it it, it kind of 
help me kind of vet people better. I think I've got a good feel for knowing if someone's a good person and, and you know, what's what's going on here and am I getting ripped off by this or that. I think that those journey that journey throughout my childhood helped me to that because, you know, Danlong was a place that if, if you wanted to if you wanted to look for something silly, you'd get ripped off and that was just the way it went and that really helped me, you know, for later on in life. So then moving on to home life, it was it was really interesting for me growing up because my dad was a very hard worker and the mentality for him was if I'm working, you're working. And I figured out at a really young age, even before I started playing basketball on the weekends, get the hell out of the house as quickly as you can. You wake up Saturday morning, have your breakfast and get out of there. And the reason why I say that is my dad worked hard all week. He worked sometimes even Saturday mornings. But let's say it was Sunday morning and, 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 you know, you sleep in as a kid or whatever and you had a long week of school and, you know, watching cartoons in the morning, eat breakfast, mum's made you some toast and the old man's already, he's already mowed all the lawns, he's whippersnippered, he's, he's fixing stuff around the house. God forbid he came in for a coffee or a drink or a bite and you're lying on the couch doing nothing, feed up, you know, loving, loving life right now, relaxing, watching TV. You would get the, hey, what are you doing? So, nothing. You're bored, huh? Okay, come with me. And then it was- you know, you're helping him clean up the the trimmings off the grass. You're, you're sweeping the yard. I mean, whatever whatever it is. And I just knew that if I'm hanging around doing nothing, it's going to piss him off. I'm getting out of there. I'm taking a footy, a basketball, a soccer ball, going to the local sports fields and, and staying out as long as I could on weekends. And that was, you know, it, it was what it was. And um, I still remember a mate of mine. I think it's more a Balkan Croatian mentality as well. It's, it's, it's you know you work and you work and you work harder um and a mate of mine we were at his house one day and we, we chucked a couple of eggs at, at his neighbor at his neighbor stupidly enough at his neighbor's house his old lady found out about it and was fuming he daniel he got he got grounded for a, um, a year one year grounded man like it was he's probably listening to this as well so shout out to daniel but i still remember like we used to catch a bus after school and go to the shops and hang out a little bit and then catch the next bus home he wasn't even allowed to do that like his mom was like no you need to be home at this time and she would make sure she was there so he got grounded so he, his mom used to make him back in the house once a week he still told me this story that she'd come home and and he he had vacuumed but not properly and the old lady goes, have you vacuumed yet? He goes, yeah, I haven't. Goes, no, you haven't done it properly. Like there's still, there's still stuff everywhere. And he gave her the, the old, uh, well, if you don't like the way I do it, do it yourself. If you want it done the way you want it done, I won't do it then. And she said, oh, okay, cool. I gotcha. Walked away, <laughs> went and grabbed the vacuum cleaner, came up to him and said, follow me. And she made him watch her vacuum the whole house. And he said it was like an hour or whatever it was, like purposely going slow. And he had to watch the whole time and just kind of shadow her throughout the house. Then she finished, looked at him and said, you think you got the hang of it? We need to do it again. And he's like, no, I'm good, I'm good. And, and then we'd have to back in the house. And, and my dad was was exactly the same. Like it was, you, you would never use that excuse. If you got you to do something, you didn't do it properly. Like you were hearing about it and you were doing it again. And so my dad actually started getting smart. He knew that I was I was just trying to bail out of the house on weekends. So we had two old Toyota Corollas, like 80s Toyota Corollas. And we had um, a Ford Fairlane, both, you know, Nice cars for us, but they weren't expensive cars or anything. But he would then give me the old, um, I need you to vacuum, uh, wash and vacuum those three cars before you go do what you want to do on the weekend. And I was like, man, you can't be serious. Like, it's going to take me three or four hours. So, yeah, well, sooner you get started, the sooner you can go do what you want. So I'll do that. And then he would come and inspect the cars and, and, you know, there'd be a rim with a bit of dirt on it. You know, I have to, I have to redo the rim. Like, and it was, I, I just knew like do this properly or he's, he's going to rail me for it. So I tried to do it the best I could, but. That was a mentality we had. It was, it was, you know, there's no excuse for doing something um, half-assed. If you're going to do something, do it properly, or you're going to do it again. And and that was kind of the way it went. And that that factored into the going to work with my dad. You know, whenever I'd have to go to work or school holidays or whatnot, he'd be working and I'd be running around riding my bike and doing this and doing that. But there'd, there'd come a time every time I went with him that he'd be like, hey, "Go get the broom and sweep up this. Go get the vacuum cleaner and vacuum my workbench for me. You know, vacuum up all the dust or the all the droppings or whatever." And that was just that that was what it was and you hated it at the time but it, it instilled it instilled some effort for reward now for the cars he, he would pay me most times he'd give me you know 10 or 20 bucks pocket money to go do what i wanted with but there were some times if he was pissed at me like i'd wash the cars and, and thought i was getting pocket money and wouldn't get them and you know it was interesting like i'd i'd saved up my own money to buy my own tv and i thought i was born i put my own tv in my room so i could go up and watch tv i actually saved up for a vcr as well which is big time because i used to record nbl and nbl games and then watch them so 
whenever whenever shit at the fam and parents, I go to my room and watch TV, right? So, nah. Whenever I, if I piss my dad off, he'd walk straight into my room, he'd rip the TV cord out of the wall and take the TV and pinch the TV and be like, you're losing your TV. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I paid for my TV. Like, why are you taking my TV? He goes, I pay for, I pay for the electricity. So once you pay for that, you can get TV back. And I was like, you just can't win, man. So like, you take that for a month or two and then, you know, I'd eventually do something good and I'd get it back. But that was, that was just the reality of, of, of growing up in a, you know, in a, in a household where, your parents were hardworking and they tried to instill the same to you. And, you know, he had a rough childhood, obviously, with, with his father. It was, was very hard on him. And, like, did I, did I cop beatings every now and then? Sure, I did. You know, I don't, I don't condone it. I don't, I don't think it was right. But some days that, you know, sometimes they were warranted to, to, to get a clip behind the ear. And I guess that was the way my father was treated by his father. If It was worse and he tapered it down and, and still – you know, when it all came down to it, that was all he knew. And yeah, he's, I mean, I was still scared of my dad till I was, you know, 17, 18 years old. And then, you know, once I grew up, started lifting weights, I felt a bit better about myself. But um, yeah, man, like he was, you know, he was a scary dude. So that's where that went off the court type stuff. We move on to, to sport and how I got involved with basketball. First started in gymnastics, funnily enough, so you can laugh at that all you want. But I got grouped in with my sister who was five years older. So I chucked in the car with her and thought, oh, well, you know, this is a good idea. We can dr- drop them off at the same spot and it's one less trip and absolutely hated it. Like couldn't stand it, hated going. You know, anything I really liked doing was jumping on the trampoline, uh, but not doing like all the flips and stuff. Just jumping on the trampoline was fun and that was it. The rings, the balance beam, you can have all that. I don't want all that. I'm, I'm good. I'm stre- stretching and all that calisthenics. I, no, I'm good, man. I, I, I just, so I begged them to quit that. So then they let me start doing some big kick which is now called Oz Kick, which is your Australian rules football kind of clinic type stuff and you play a little bit and all that kind of stuff. Love that. But the old lady wasn't a huge fan of it and getting the car all muddy in Melbourne and wet and stinky from the mud. So did that for a little while. Did some Taekwondo as well. Remember doing that and and then having our first kind of graded spa where you're just supposed to do the techniques and all that kind of stuff and was against someone else in the class and doing the techniques and he clipped me, I think, in the face by half accident and just laid him basically laid him out and just kicked him straight in the stomach. He went down and, you know, everyone's kind of losing it. Like, oh, you're not supposed to do that. And, and that was enough Taekwondo for me. I was done after that. And then, you know, basketball came up. So I, I had always kind of liked basketball. And once my father had um, ace carburetors in Clayton through the 80s and 90s, there was the story's been told before by the media that there's, I think the factory's still there. I'm not sure if the hoop's still there, but there was a hoop that the panel beaters directly next door to us. So, so it was two joint factories one A and one B. The separation wall outside. They drilled a, a Kmart type hoop into that into that wall. So the two bolts ring straight in the wall. They use it to hang things up to dry. So they they spray paint little parts or whatever from a car, and and they have these massive hooks, metal hooks, and they they they'd have stuff drying on there. So that was my first hoop. I don't know if it was regulation height. I don't know if it was regulation size, but I started throwing a tennis ball, then a soccer ball, then a basketball, and I just fell in love with the game. And it was probably at seven eight years old, but never really thought about formally. Didn't even know teams existed to play. Like you know, you're a kid, you, you don't know any better. So that's where that journey towards falling in love with the game started and then then it then it turned into seeing it on TV. Hang on a second, this is what I was doing at, at, at my dad's dad's shop. Like this is on TV. This is really cool. So I started watching it. Then I remember I'd, I'd take um NBA game of the week would be on on a Saturday morning. They'd cut a, a full game into one hour. The NBA action would follow that. And then there'd be something NBA on on a Friday night and sometimes on a Saturday hour but I record all of it. And then I'd watch those tapes Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday until I got a new tape. I wouldn't tape over it. I'd just continue taping and then I'd have all these tape basketball tapes. And then so in the off season, I'd, I'd start again and watch all those tapes till the next season. So I'd record more. And that's how the passion for me started. Just always had a, a natural love for it. People out there think, oh, you know, you're seven foot tall. You're, you're always going to make it in basketball. I didn't know I was going to be seven foot tall at that age. My, my, my dad's six, four, my mom's five, 10. Like no one would have guessed I was going to be seven foot. So I, I love the game at a young age and I didn't play it. Because I was tall, it was the tall thing for me that came later on in life was, you know, a God-given gift and something that I was very lucky with, but I always loved the game. So, going from that, it then became, hey, you know, mum, dad, I need a hoop at home. I need to be able to practice. So, the old man put a um, put a hoop up in the front yard and we lived on a steep hill and then our driveway was a a steep hill that went down to the garage. So about a 45 degree incline, that's where the hoop was. So think about you're standing on the 45 degree incline facing the hoop. Some spots you're shooting from a 15 feet and some spots are eight feet, some spots are 10 feet. 
And if you spray a shot to the right, off the right of the rim, you, you run down the hill chasing it, dodging cars or, or whatever. So that was my first first hoop and I loved it. But then it got to a point where you're like, mom, dad, can you move the car? I want to go shoot. And then you shoot and you're like, man, this is like, you know, it's, it's great because I never had a hoop, but can we do a little bit better? So I told the old man like, oh, can we do something better? So we had a, we had a pool in the backyard, one of those <laughs> above ground fiberglass pools I'm sure there's people out there that can relate to them. Like you, you neck yourself just getting in the bloody things and you get real careful not to push off too hard off the sides because the, the whole thing could collapse. But but we had, that's that's what we had and we enjoyed it. My sister and I at a young age and my sister would swim a bit more than me. And, and then I guess the old man had decided that, all right, we're going to remove the pool. Sister was pissed. We're going to remove the pool. We're going to put a basketball court in the backyard. And it was a pretty big space in that corner. I was like, sensational. Like, this would be awesome. Put a basketball court in, in the back there or a little, little probably quarter court or whatever we could fit. And I thought it was the best thing ever. Little did I know my father had a grand plan. So we had a, we had a veggie garden on the side of our house. And it was, it was okay, but he, he put it in a spot that wasn't getting a lot of sun. So he was starting to get pissed off and he's like, why can't I grow this? Why can't I grow that? What's going on? This, that, this, that. And then obviously did some study. Like he's one of those guys that'll go back and, and study things when it, when he can't figure it out and it pisses him off. And I'm very similar. I'll, I'll do the same and jump online. Even if it's about the dumbest thing ever, I'll try to research it and read about it and, and figure it out. What he didn't tell me was where the pool was. He's still going to, he's going to put a veggie garden in that area and in front of it along the neighbor's fence next door to us would be a little court. So it ended up being about the width of a free throw line, maybe a little bit more, maybe another foot wider. And, and the length was about to the free throw line, maybe a bit further back. And then it went, it dropped a little bit after that. And that was it. And it kind of squared up to, to our veranda area. So I had this little kind of cocoon, right? And we just, we just laid pavers down. And that was it. We concreted in a, a hoop. And that was where the journey all started for me as far as having my own little piece of heaven that to me that was kudos arena that was staples center that was oracle arena that was madison square garden i was i was in my element right so the ball starts going over the fence a lot like okay every every so often i gotta jump over the fence or go knock on the neighbor's door and i had my balls in the backyard so my dad was like all right we'll try to fix that for you so this dude goes to the local hardware store he buys some shade mesh and some treated pine posts and puts up this like on, on that whole side of the fence where the neighbor's neighbor's house was, he puts up, it's probably, it would have been close to 15, it was taller than the hoop, it was 15, 20 feet tall on massive posts. So every time I was shooting miss or, or whatever the ball would spray off, it would just hit that shade mesh and stay in bounds. So he's just done that. No permits, you know, all this, all this council approval stuff, ah, please, I'll be right, don't worry about it. So then I know the neighbors weren't happy because it was blocking a bunch of their sun in their backyard. Then that veggie garden in the corner, He's basically built a um, a full-on enclosure. So he's built a veggie garden and all the birds started pinching all these veggies and stuff that he was growing. So he's then gone on. This is all done by himself. Like he's a, very good with his hands and builds a, a massive, look like a chicken coop, like, you know, chicken wire fencing, chicken wire roofing, chicken wire door. And that was kind of the corner of my basketball heaven, you know, a massive walk veggie garden growing, you know, massive cucumbers and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was pretty funny, but that was kind of where that where that all started. The next problem we had was Melbourne winters. It gets dark 4.35 o'clock. It's already getting dark and um, I want to, want to stay outside and shoot. So he then ended up putting some floodlights up so I could be out there till eight thirty, nine o'clock, and I'd do that most nights until the old lady would, would come to the back door and yell at me to come inside. I got school the next day or whatever it was, or every now and then the, we had two neighbors, the neighbors on the other side, Romanians, I believe, they, they, they'd come out and lose their shit and start yelling at me like to go to bed, go inside. So that was just it. The neighbors, all they heard was, was balls bouncing nonstop, and that was – to me, I was in my element, man. Like whether it was forty degrees outside, whether it was raining, whether it was windy, I'd be outside, you know, doing something basketball-wise. And that was kind of, I guess, also my my release from, you know, whether school sucked or you're getting bullied at school or you got in a fight or your parents are, you know, breaking your balls or whatever it is. Um, that was kind of the place I could go and forget about all that. So that's what basketball brought me. That that led me to basically begging to sign up for a basketball team or a basketball club. So I went to my parents, hey, I want to play basketball. And yeah, 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 you know, we heard that all before. This all costs money, You're changing sports left, right, and center. You know, you don't understand uniforms, shoes, fees, money doesn't grow on trees. That that speech that I heard, you know, countless amounts of time as a kid, you know, when, whenever it was anything to do with money. And that's, you know, because we didn't have a lot of it. It was, it was warranted and they had a point. You know, I'd, I'd been in three different sports in three years and you know they thought oh, i was in basketball then what next and they basically said look if, if we change you if, if you change sports to basketball this is it you're not you're not changing anymore we're not we're not 
paying fees and uniforms it costs you know costs a lot of money for us so i was like oh i pushed all, i pushed all my chips in the middle of the table and was like oh, i'm all in for basketball you know i'm, I'm good i'm good i want to it's what i want to do and first club i played for was the endeavor hills redbacks i think it was b c d grade i don't know what it was you know it wasn't a grade and it was just played at the local endeavor hills leisure center and the moment i walked in for my first game it just it just clicked the smell of the wood wood floor, the, the whistle, the, the noise of the whistle, the noise of the squeaky feet, um, having having to come in and watch the game before you, it just it just felt all so so real and awesome. And I just it just I don't know, it was something that just it just clicked naturally for me, like a you know a, a square peg in a square hole. And I still remember that game to this day. It's it's a long long time ago. I think I was nine years old or ten years old, and I scored my first basket. It was a free throw. Funnily enough, go figure. I went one for two from the line. So much like. Much like my career, I went went one for two, and I actually made both free throws. But I toe bashed the line, and the referee, um, probably refs in the NBA now, but yeah, referee, he he cancelled the free throw because I toe bashed the line. But I went one for two, and I still remember. I still remember getting home, and my it was Saturday morning. My dad was at work. I called my dad, and I was so pumped. It was like I scored fifty. I made a shot. I made a shot. I made a shot. I made a free throw. You know, blah 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 blah. The old side's great. Good job. Whatever. And you just look back at those days, and you you think like once you're professional. If you scored eight on eight, nine, ten points, some games you'd be really disappointed with yourself. If your average was fifteen or whatever, you have a bad game, but maybe you have seven and seven, seven point seven rebounds. You're like, oh man, I wasn't, I wasn't good tonight, or whatever. You look back at that kid, and it was like you couldn't tell me anything. I, I made a shot. I made, I scored my first basket, and that is where the journey to basketball for me started. With Endeavour Hills Redbacks, the Endeavour Hills Leisure Centre, with a one for two trip to the free throw line, and the rest. We'll continue on. So I appreciate everyone tuning in to Rogue Bogues. This was episode one of the Rogue Bogues, the journey podcast. So breaking down everything, Andrew Bogut and family and all that kind of fun stuff. So appreciate you all tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe. We're Rogue Bogues on all social media platforms. We're on all good um, podcast platforms now. We should be everywhere. There's a link in the bio for all the Rogue Bogues websites. It takes you to a page that has basically every platform that our podcast is on. So you can find it there. And, and episode two, we'll follow this and we'll be digging more into junior basketball and, and high school and all that fun stuff. So I hope you enjoyed. It's kind of an in-depth, long-winded, kind of zero to 11 years old part of my life. Um, but some real quirky, interesting stories along the way, and it'll only get better as we go along. So thanks for tuning in. And thank you for getting rogue with us.